1: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 47 Inchiquin and Broghill Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has seen some changes. Bell Lord Williams, has ascended to the Earldom of Carrick. Neil Johnson has ascended to the Earl of Cambowara. They have been joined by the Earl of Ross, Hunter O'Malley, Lawrence, Earl of Kintore, Aaron, Baron Seltzer, Michael, Baron Seymour, Eliza, Lady Schultz, and Baron Bryn. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Before we begin, sorry for the delay in this episode. It's been a very busy month, combined with illness in the family, and then capped off with me getting a cold that made me lose my voice, which is tricky for podcasting, and you might still be able to hear it. Thank you to everyone for your patience. Last time, we finished our mini-series on the East Anglian witch hunts, the largest English witch panic in history. Sparked by a single accusation in the Essex village of Manningtree, the witch panic spread throughout the region from 1644 until around 1647. Hundreds of people, mostly women but also some men and children, were accused of conjuring spirits, making deals with the devil, and causing harm through maleficium. The most famous, or infamous, individual involved in the East Anglian Trials is the Witchfinder General, Matthew Hopkins, alongside his colleague John Stern. The two men led their retinues of professional watchers, searchers, and pricks at prickers throughout the region, offering their esteemed services to those communities they passed. For those services, they demanded a humble fee, which was often so high that more than one parish was left struggling with debt. However, gradually, the opposition to the witch hunt grew to the point where the witch finders had to justify themselves to the public, to argue that witch beliefs were not superstitious, that their means of extracting confession weren't torture, and that their fees were not extortionate. Neither Hopkins nor Stern managed to do so. Hopkins died young, from an illness he likely caught when visiting one of the disease-ridden dungeons his suspects were kept in. Stern spent the next few years and any fortune he'd earned from his witch-hunting days fending off lawyers representing the communities he had helped. Now we return to the big picture, and to Ireland. We last left Ireland as King Charles, through his leading representative in the kingdom, the Marquis of Ormond, James Butler, signed the cessation of arms with the Irish Confederacy. This had not gone down well in England or Scotland, or among Protestants in Ireland. This isn't hugely surprising. In the King's British Kingdoms, the Confederacy was seen as just a presentable face for the outrageous and barbarous violence of the Irish Rebellion. If you recall, the printers had had a field day reporting, exaggerating, or just completely inventing Atrocities which the Irish rebels had committed in the uprising. Now, just a few years later, the King was agreeing to a truce to better fight Parliament in England. Even for English royalists, the cessation left a bad taste in their mouths, even before they considered the political repercussions of signing a truce with the Confederates. We've already covered the benefits and costs of the cessation to the King's cause in England, but to sum it up, He paid a very high political price for a very low return, with only a few thousand soldiers returning from Ireland to fight for him, with many of those being killed in battle, deserting, or defecting to Parliament's armies. In Ireland, it split the Protestant side. Ormond remained, in theory, the commander-in-chief for all Protestant forces, which included the Scottish Covenanters in Ulster, commanded by Munro but that had always been a very tenuous chain of command, and the cessation, and then the Solemn League and Covenant, shattered that convenient lie. The war between the Confederates and the Covenanters continued. But the cessation brought other divisions within the Protestant side to the fore, most notably in Munster. Here, in July 1644, Lord Inchiquin published a unanimous declaration, which announced his defection from the royalist cause to that of Parliament. The declaration explained that this desertion from the King's banner was due to Charles having agreed not to make peace with the Irish rebels without Parliament's approval. This was part of the Adventurers' Act of 1642, passed by Parliament after Charles fled London, but which he had given royal assent to. Because if there was one thing both King and Parliament could agree on, even as they geared up for civil war, was that the Irish Rebellion had to be crushed. But now, here was Charles going back on his word, in order to better focus on fighting his own Protestant subjects. It was an appalling betrayal. Inchiquin made sure to send copies of his declaration to the King, to the English Parliament, and to the Committee of Both Kingdoms, as well as to Ormond himself. A week after his defection, and in a coordinated action, cities under Inchiquin's control throughout Munster expelled their Catholic citizenry to prevent any treachery now that they had rejected the cessation. But all was not well in Inchiquin's outpost of parliamentary Protestantism, and here we have to get stuck into the deeply complex and interconnected world of Irish dynastic politics. The first family we need to know are the Boyles. We've met the Boyles before. They were a New English family who rose to prominence on the efforts of Richard Boyle, who was made the first Earl of Cork in 1620. This was the Earl of Cork who Lord Deputy Strafford tried to humble as best he could, such as when he famously had the Earl remove the tomb of his late wife from Dublin Cathedral. The first Earl of Cork would die in 1643, on the same day the cessation was signed leaving his eldest surviving son, also called Richard, as the second Earl of Cork. The new Earl of Cork travelled to Oxford to meet with the King, and to campaign to prevent Lord Inchiquin being named as the President of Munster over the winter of 1643-44. Inchiquin was the primary rival of the Boyle family in the province, and Cork was following in his father's footsteps, even if the kingdoms were stricken by civil war. But another boyle child was lord broghill who was one of inchiquin's most important subordinates he followed inchiquin into defecting from the king and was governor of one of the cities which had expelled catholics so what's going on here why is one brother sticking with the king against his family's chief rival while another brother turns against the king alongside that same rival and the answer is Unsurprisingly complicated. Partly, Broghill was motivated by the cessation. Aside from any moral concerns with making peace with the Catholic rebels, Broghill saw the cessation as damaging the Protestant position in Ireland. Their garrisons were to be shipped back to England to fight and die in the King's wars against other Protestants. This had been the main point of the cessation, after all, but it meant that the Confederacy further secured their position at the expense of the Protestant English, again, not counting the Covenanters in Ulster, who never agreed to the cessation and where the war kept going. This was quite a common perspective, as we've seen, and especially common amongst Irish Protestants. The other major reason for Brokehill standing by Inchequin, the enemy of the Boyles, was that remaining with the King meant standing alongside the Marquess of Ormond, who was another enemy of the Boyles. Worse, Ormond was deeply connected to the Confederacy through familial ties. Patrons of the rank of Earl and Higher received a bonus episode covering Ormond's early life. While Ormond was himself a Protestant, many of his family members were not, and he counted among his relatives the Viscounts Muskery and Mount Garrett, both of whom were leading members of the Confederacy. Could he really be trusted to lead the Protestant cause in Ireland, and even if he could be, could he be trusted with the future of the Boyles? Closer ties to England, and to the English Parliament, was the best way to secure Protestantism and the Boyle family in Ireland, as Broghill saw it. In a way, both the new Earl of Cork and his brother, Lord Broghill, were continuing their father's legacy, just in different ways. Cork, like his father, placed service to the Crown, and the security of his family's position in Munster, as his top priority, even if it meant standing by a deeply unpleasant cessation. Broghill, like his father, placed his Protestant faith, and the security of his family's position in Ireland, as his top priority, even if it meant standing by the deeply unpleasant Inchiquin, Where the 1st Earl of Cork had been able to pursue both priorities at once, He had lived in much, much simpler times. His sons had to pick and choose.
0: Ben, we're on someone else's podcast. Let's not intrude too much.
1: You've got 30 seconds to tell this wonderful listenership about the conference.
0: Shoot. Oh, okay. Uh, Intelligent Speech is back. Again. It's a conference that brings together your favorite educational podcasters with their fans in an intense one-day online extravaganza. It's all happening online on June 25th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Between the three keynotes and the 42 individual sessions and roundtables, it's a three-ring circus of online content. Wow. What are they going to be speaking about? Our theme this year is crossings, of one form or another. Very arty, very chic. Amazing. Where can people get tickets? Intelligent Speech Conference, all one word, dot com. And tickets are thirty dollars, but if you act now, you will get the early bird special of twenty dollars. And if you use this show's promo code, which hopefully the host will shortly provide, you will save an additional ten percent. Wow. Cue browsing music. <laughs> Use code
1: Agora to get 10% off tickets.
0: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
1: Broghill was not about to bury the hatchet with Inchiquin; Far from it. He was playing the game. Broghill travelled to London to meet with the Irish Subcommittee, who were meant to be orchestrating the parliamentary war in Ireland as well as the Committee for Both Kingdoms over the winter of 1644-45. to When he returned in January, he brought with him Parliamentary approval for Inchiquin to become the new President of Munster, and for Broghill to become the General of Horse for the province. Again, we might wonder at this. The Boyles had been angling for the presidency of Munster for years, and here was Broghill handing it on a plate to the family's chief rival. But this was, as Patrick Little puts it in his brilliant monograph on Broghill, merely a temporary expedient. By securing the presidency for Inchiquin, Broghill also secured his own position, and had Parliament's approval for it. He'd made new allies in London, and strengthened his connections with the old ones. He was prepared for any dispute with his superior, which is convenient, because when Broghill had left for London, the two men had already begun to fall out. Little highlights three major points of division between them. Firstly, Inchiquin's willingness to negotiate with both the Confederacy and Ormond. Just two months after his unanimous declaration, Inchiquin was angling to be included in the next cessation of arms when the truce came up for renewal that year. Ormond was keen, but the Confederacy officially refused to include Inchiquin's forces while he still received aid from the English Parliament. After all, Inchiquin had only just made a big deal about repudiating the cessation. But as we mentioned before, Ormond had connections with the Confederacy, and his brother in law, Viscount Muskery, agreed a deal with Inchiquin before Christmas that year. Now, we can partly understand Inchiquin's backpedalling on the grounds that he was incredibly isolated and vulnerable to Confederate attack. Supplies from the English parliament had been slow to arrive, and the realisation that he now stood alone against the Confederacy probably did a great deal to push Inchiquin back towards jaw-jaw rather than war-war. Even when attacked by Confederate forces in February, Inchiquin remained committed to warding off the Catholics through negotiation. He even tried to get in on the peace discussions being held between the King's agents, including Ormond, and the Confederacy in the summer of 1645, though that didn't happen. We can only imagine Broghill's reaction to all of this. As Little puts it, quote, The mere fact that Parliament's Lord President of Munster was prepared to discuss unilateral deals with the King's Lord-Lieutenant reveals the ideological distance that had grown between Inchiquin and that convinced parliamentarian, Lord Broghill, by the autumn of 1645. Little points out that Inchiquin must have been aware of his subordinate's opposition to this strategy, as his diplomatic efforts were most active when, coincidentally, Broghill was away, either in England or elsewhere in Ireland. The second major cause of division between the two men was the Solemn League and Covenant. Broghill had quickly imposed the oath on his men once he defected from the royalist's side, but Inchiquin, eyeing the dangerous military situation and wanting to avoid an immediate attack, issued a declaration essentially criticising the rash behaviour of his subordinate. Both men were viewing the same problem, their weakness in the face of Confederate strength, and coming to different conclusions. Inchiquin wanted to delay any Irish attack until parliamentary supplies and reinforcements could arrive, and signing the Solemn League and Covenant would almost certainly invite an attack before any ships set sail from England. Broghill, likewise, wanted parliamentary support but he realised that that support would not be forthcoming until the former Royalists nailed their colours to the mast by signing the Solemn League and Covenant. They were both pulling in opposite directions, and so they went nowhere. Inchiquin's lukewarm position only partly fended off the Confederates, and suspicions of his loyalty to Parliament meant that few supplies were sent. The issue of the oath just kept coming up. In November 1644, Parliament eventually sent an agent to Munster to settle, once and for all, whether Inchiquin had taken the Covenant. Somehow, Inchiquin managed to either lie or otherwise avoid the question. In April 1645, the Committee for both kingdoms ordered an investigation into which of their officers had taken the Solemn League and Covenant as instructed. This list included Broghill. But not Inchiquin. A clerical error, perhaps? Did Inchiquin just forget to fill out the forms and post them back? Not according to an intercepted letter from the Royalist Earl of Digby, sent to Ormond, which expressed the hope that Inchiquin could be won back to the Royalist side. Why would the Royalists have this hope if Inchiquin had sincerely taken the solemn league and covenant? Money and supplies, which had been allocated to Munster and Inchiquin, were now held back. The only supplies which were sent came at the personal intervention of Broghill, who was, in Parliament's eyes, far more trustworthy. The third major cause for tension between the two men, and one which will come to dominate their relationship, was a growing trend within the Protestant Irish community, shared with the political scene in England. Factions which had increasingly drawn further apart on religious and political issues. These were the Presbyterian and Independent factions, which we mentioned during our episodes on the Solemn League and Covenant, and which we'll talk much more about in an English context in a soon-to-come episode. As a reminder, the Presbyterian faction desired negotiation and compromise with Charles, and to, as the name suggests, institute a Presbyterian Calvinist Church in England as well as Ireland. The independents were much more determined to see the king defeated, not negotiated with, defeated on the field of battle, and to produce a religious settlement which allowed for freedom of worship for most Protestants. As always, these priorities aren't set in stone or applied evenly, but they're helpful for understanding the complicated politics of revolutionary England. These factions related differently with Ireland. The Presbyterian desire for a compromise peace would include the Ormondists in Ireland, those Protestants who allied with the Lord Deputy, as well as the Scottish Covenant of Forces in Ulster. The Earl of Essex, Parliament's Commander in Chief, for now, was counted among the Presbyterian faction. Essex's half brother was the Earl of Clanrickard, a Catholic and an ally of Ormond. So naturally, Inchiquin found support from the Presbyterian faction. The Independents took a very hard line on the Irish issue, and through their dominance of the Committee for Both Kingdoms, they exerted their influence over the Irish Affairs Subcommittee. The Independents wanted Ormond gone. They despised the cessation, and they favoured a very harsh policy against Irish Catholics. So naturally, Broghill found himself aligned with these independents. Little groups Broghill alongside zealous colonial administrators like ex-Lord Justice Parsons and Sir John Temple, christening them as the Irish Independents, and highlighting that many of these Irish Independents had been aligned with the First Earl of Cork in the decades before the Rebellion. Their aims remained much the same now as they did then, they desired the reformation and civilization of the native Irish through extensive plantation, and they opposed Ormond and the butlers. The English independents were also very concerned about Scottish influence over English affairs, and they absolutely included Ireland as an English affair. While initially supportive of the Covenanter invasion in Ulster on a purely military level, they were wary of allowing the Scots too much of a say in both the prosecution of the war in both England and Ireland, and the eventual peace with the King. After the signing of the Solemn League and Covenant, and the dramatic involvement of the Covenant of Scots in the English War, the Scots' influence slowly began to fizzle out. Partly, this was due to events we've already covered. Montrose's Year of Victories not only humiliated the Covenanter regime, and cast doubts on their military strength, but it hampered the Scottish army in England, which didn't want to campaign too far south in case they needed to suppress Montrose in Scotland. We'll cover the other factors in much more detail when we return to finish the First English Civil War, but for our purposes right now, the Independents were keen to reduce any bargaining power the Scots might wield at the negotiating table and that meant reducing the reliance of irish protestants on monroe and his covenanter army now we can better understand the factions within the broader protestant side of the irish confederate wars and the delicate political networks which defined them the marquis of ormond holding dublin headed an increasingly shaky coalition of protestant royalists who aimed to secure protestantism and the king's authority in ireland but were open to compromise with the Catholic Confederation, and counted Catholics among their number. To their north, Robert Munro commanded the Covenant army sent from Scotland on the outbreak of the Rebellion. Now reduced in size from casualties and from transfers back to Britain, it was still a serious threat, but it suffered from the Presbyterians, Independents and Covenanters jockeying for position and influence in Britain. In the south, Lord Inchiquin's defection complicated matters even further. He could count on the Presbyterian faction in London for support, but their influence was on the wane, and his willingness to negotiate with both the Confederates and Ormond, and his resistance to signing the Solemn League and Covenant, made him suspect. His subordinate, Lord Brokehill, saw things much more black and white. The cessation was a mistake. Ormond was untrustworthy and negotiating with the Confederacy was a betrayal of Protestantism. His dislike of Inchiquin, initially for reasons of familial rivalry, soon gained a personal element with the Lord President's endless wavering and backsliding. Broghill found his support in London from the Independents. So, the Protestant side of the Irish Confederate Wars is a bit of a mess. Hopefully we can view the Confederate side as one big happy family? A nice and simple, clear-cut and unified administration, all moving in the same way for the same goals? Now, why ever would you think that? Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Frederick, Sue Bremner, Duchess of Wellington, Liam Hunter, the Marquess of Coventry, and Mark Petrie, the Earl of Mansfield. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. These are the best way to support the podcast, support me, and to help the podcast grow. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Use code AGORA to get 10% off tickets.
0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void are prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.